Kathleen and I are part of an MC that we just started with the Bingers last week on Tuesday nights in Butler Tarkington, so you're welcome to join us there as well. Like he said, the scripture is Matthew 20, verses 20 to 28. It's on page 535 in the Bibles in front of you. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, and kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. All right, so um, again, if you're new, I'm Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we're going through a series right now uh, on our vision. And so our vision statement as a church is to see the gospel of Jesus change everything. And we're trying to unpack what that means, what that looks like. How do you, how do you measure gospel transformation? How do you know when the gospel is beginning to take root and to change a community of people? And, and then what that looks like, not only inside the walls of this body, but also outside as we as we are being transformed and we are experiencing the presence of Jesus, we want to move out into our community with a transforming presence. And so what does it look like for us to do that? And we've got five outcomes that we've identified as a group of pastors and leaders of this church that we are kind of unpacking in this series. So we want to see transformed disciples. We talked about that the last couple of weeks. A disciple is, person, is a person who is following Jesus, which means they're doing everyday life for Jesus, with Jesus, like Jesus. It's the heart of what it means to be a disciple. Last week we read this hard passage in, in Luke where Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you've got to pick up your cross, deny yourself daily, come after me. Uh, we read the story of Zacchaeus a couple weeks ago and we saw what it looked like for a person to actually encounter Jesus um, and to, to, to be saved, to be rescued by Jesus. Um, we, we want to see transformed leaders. So the next two weeks we're going to be kind of spending time together talking about what does it look like uh, to have a vision for transformational leadership and what needs to change. Um, for us to become the kind of leaders that Jesus has called us to be in this world. Transform communities, right? As we are transformed, we we move out into our communities and we see our neighborhoods change. We form life-giving communities. So these kind of cascade from disciple to leader to community and then to church and then ultimately spill out into the world and we see human flourishing. And that's really what we ought to be about as a church, not just seeing individual people coming into individual relationships with God with no impact around us, but rather as we're being transformed, we move out and we have a vision for the flourishing of our neighborhoods and our city. And so today and next week, we're going to be talking about leadership. Today, I want to talk a little bit about the motivation for leadership and kind of what what fuels kind of the engine that drives leadership. And then next week, we're going to look at Ephesians 4 
And we're going to talk about the gifting of leadership and how God has gifted each one of us for service and what it looks like, again, to have a vision for all of us using our gifts, everyone pitching in, everyone contributing, no spectators, but everyone living like an owner, using and activating their gift, their voice, making a contribution in a way that builds up the body and strengthens the fabric of our community. We, uh, we live in this cultural moment that is obsessed with leadership. So, like, I don't, I mean, I, I did a doctorate. I spent four years uh, studying leadership. I did my doctorate in leadership and I probably scanned or seen every leadership title prior to about 2008 uh, on the market. Um, you think about the proliferation of just books and articles and conferences on leadership. And yet, this strange irony and paradox is the more we focus on leadership, the more we don't really know what leadership is. is. I think we're actually getting worse. I don't know if it's like leadership fatigue that we're experiencing, but there's so many little articles that are like, this is the way to do it. You know, and and there's kind of these little uh, tribes that have emerged. You know, are you a Drucker guy? Are you, you know, like we have all these different loyalties and and, and fan bases with leadership. But I was reading this article in Forbes uh, this week. It's caught my attention. It's so, so right on. Uh, This author says, everybody thinks they're a leader. Most are far from it. The harsh reality is that we live in a world awash with wannabe leaders. When you think about some of your biggest frustrations and your biggest pain points in life, they center on leadership, right? I mean, think about what frustrates you Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday. It it, it usually stems from leadership issues, right? You don't like your manager, you don't like your boss, or if you are a boss, you're frustrated with your followers, with the people that report to you. And it's interesting, like when you, 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 you do research into leadership, you notice there's always a gap between the way that leaders perceive reality and the way that their direct reports and employees perceive reality. Leaders think they're doing a really good job. Employees think they're not doing a really good job. Conversely, employees think they're doing a really good job. And if I just had a different leader, then everything would go. If I could just get out from underneath this oppressive, tyrannical leader or this incompetent leader and I could start my own business, then I'll fix the world, right? That's kind of the, the tensions of leadership. So we think about that in business. Think about that in family. Certainly think about that in politics right now, right? Um, we think about that in our neighborhoods. I mean, think about the questions that we're asking with leadership. Who gets to be in charge? Everybody thinks they should be in charge, right? The problem is if I were in charge, then everything would be good. <laughs> Who gets to be in charge? Who has power? David talked about power this morning, which is something Jesus was intimately acquainted with. He talked about a lot. The Bible talks about a lot. Who, whose vision for the good life wins? So what we're often after when we're chasing leadership is I have this vision for what could be. I have an imagination for what should be or conviction. <clears throat> Of what should be. And we have competing, clashing visions. So I, I, I bet that if you just boil down some of your greatest frustrations and pain points in life, they center on issues around leadership, authority, power, privilege, status. And that's exactly what Jesus invites us to think about this morning. He starts with this question in Matthew chapter 20 to ones who are fighting over leadership? It's just a simple question. I love how Jesus does this. Jesus doesn't show up and just throw down. Jesus asks a question. What do you want? In Mark, he explains it a little bit, and he says, what do you want me to do for you? 
What Jesus is doing here is trying to get us to name our desires. He's trying to get James and John to name and to be honest about their desires. Even if they're wrong. Even if they're off. He wants us to be honest about our desires. Notice verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him, to Jesus, with her sons, kneeling before him, acknowledging and respecting his position of authority. She asked him for something. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, say say that these two sons of mine are to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink? And they said, we are able. He said to them, you will drink my cup. But sit in my right hand and my left is not mine to grant, for it is for those whom it has been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard it, they were indignant and sense grieved at the others. So a mom, possibly Jesus' aunt, humanly speaking, comes to Jesus on behalf of her boys. Classic tiger parenting move right here. She comes on behalf of her boys to ask Jesus for more. Now, if you don't know anything about Jesus and his kind of movement, James and John are the ultimate insiders. They are people of privilege. Now, they were ordinary fishermen, and so they have no background or education that would make them particularly privileged. But Jesus calls them by his grace, and he pulls them into his inner circle. So Jesus' inner circle, there's 12 disciples, and within that inner circle, there's three. Anybody know who they are? James, John, Peter. So two of the three who have all of this privilege, who have all of this access. I mean, these are Jesus' roadies. These are his homeboys. These are the guys that travel around with him that are public. These are the guys parting the crowds, you know, going out in front of Jesus when the photogs and all the, you know, people are chasing after him. They're the ones kind of running out front security detail. These are Jesus' guys. And they come to Jesus in what Jesus himself has promised, authority, power. These are actually the things that Jesus says, when you come into my kingdom, this isn't just some private realm of personal piety and devotion. I'm actually coming to bring justice. I'm actually coming to bring power. I'm actually coming with authority. Matthew 19, Jesus said to the disciples, verses 28 and 29, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, in my kingdom, when the Son of Man, that's Jesus, will sit on his throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left father and mother, houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Jesus says. I mean, Matthew chapter 6, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. They're believing Jesus when he said he's going to be the king. They're, they're naming the desires of their heart earnestly, authentically. They have a bold faith in what Jesus promised. And notice, like, Jesus is so kind with them. Like, if you were, if you were like this, you know, James and John's edge mentor, you, you'd be, how dare you? How dare, you're so ambitious. You're so wrong. How dare you ask for this kind of authority and power? Jesus is so kind. 
He just lets them say it. Notice he doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't condemn them. He pulls them in close. He instructs and begins to disciple their desires. He says, this desire that you have actually is not wrong. I I was the one who put that desire in you. The desire to be great. The desire to lead. The desire to have power. It is part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And Jesus comes to reshape that, to recalibrate it, to redirect it, to redefine it. But he doesn't rebuke them. He just draws near and he teaches them. That's pretty amazing. Because Jesus wants us to be honest about our desires. He wants us to own our desires, to name our desires. What do you want? Do you have the courage to come to Jesus and be honest about what you want? Because here's the reality. What you don't own will own you. And if you're not aware of your desires, if you don't know yourself, you can't deny yourself, can't give yourself, can't love other people, unless you're first owning who you are. And so even if those desires are off, which they are, they want power and privilege, status and greatness. But if if we're not honest about those desires, we push them down. We we engage in false humility. You know how we do this, right? It's like, it's just about Jesus. It's all about him. It's like every Christian conference and worship thing you've ever been. It's all about him. While I'm on this platform with all of this power and status and privilege. Jesus says, no, I want you to be honest. Just tell me what you want. What can I do for you? How can I serve you? And what he's doing in, in this question is not seeking information. He, he already knows. He's God. He already knows what they want. He already knows because he just taught him this is what's going to happen. He's not seeking information. He's seeking transformation. And so he asked this question to expose their deeper motivations, to get at their heart, to get at the orientation of their soul, to get beneath the terrain of the pleasantries and the things that we say that are not actually real and true and deepest. And so he's exposing this deeper motivation for status. He's going to go on to say in verse 25, for greatness, for privilege, to be seen, to be first. And so here's what's interesting. They do what all of us do. They over-spiritualize their ambition. They over-spiritualize their ambition. Jesus, let us sit at your right hand and your left for your kingdom. For your glory in your name, Jesus, would you make us great? You see what they're doing there? They're they're invoking God talk to baptize selfish ambition. Does that sound familiar? You ever done that? I've done that. I do it all the time. Let's change the city. What I mean is I want to be great. I want to be first. I want to be known. I want to be that pastor. How do we do this? We do this all the time. Christians do this all the time. And we have like catchphrases for doing it. We're going to change the world. We're going to transform society. I just want to have influence. I'm going to build a platform, but it's going to influence people. But I'm going to build a platform. We see this in celebrity culture all the time within Christianity. 
we have our celebrities, our heroes. The tendency we have to over-spiritualize things and the dangerous dark side of doing this in the kingdom of God, trying to baptize our ambition, over-spiritualize it, when really at the core, it's about us making a name for ourselves. It says, can we change the world? The question is wrong because for Christians, it makes the primary subservient to the secondary. By making a certain understanding of the good in society, the objective, the source of the good, God himself and the intimacy he offers becomes nothing more than a tool to be used to achieve that objective. When this happens, righteousness can quickly become cruelty. And injustice can rapidly turn into injustice. Indeed, history is filled with the bloody consequences of this logic. Over-spiritualizing our ambition, using Jesus' talk to mask over selfish ambition. Jesus knows what's in their hearts. He's going for their hearts. He's saying, be careful. Be careful. Be aware of your desires. Be aware of your tendency to use power and authority to serve yourself. You're not able to handle that kind of platform, he says. And be careful. That's why he asked the question, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? Can you suffer? Because leadership, Jesus says, is about suffering. See, the essence of status, which is really what they're after here. They're not just after authority. They're after the dark side of authority, which is status. I want to be known. I want to be seen. I want to be great. I want to be first. And status is always rooted in a scarcity mindset. There is a finite amount of resources, so I've got to push my way to the front to make sure that I get it before you. It's what C.S. Lewis says, the essence of pride is not just that I want something, it's that I want one more than you. Pride is essentially competitive, he says. And Jesus sees this in their being, this competitiveness in their being. That's what he's calling out. Not this desire for authority, not even just this desire for power. Jesus isn't saying power's bad, authority's bad. He's saying there's a certain kind of person that can't handle the power and the authority that I want to bring. And it's rooted in the scarcity mindset. And whenever there's a scarcity mindset, what begins to happen, like the dark side of status, is exclusion. It's resentment. It's competition. Think about it in the context of a church. We want to have the best whatever. We're going to be the best at justice. We're going to be the best at worship. Like it's easy for that to creep in. We've got the best whatever. We've got the best coffee. We've got the best building. I mean, there's many ways this can kind of creep in. There's this competitiveness that happens when we're chasing status and it hurts people. You ever been hurt by Christians competing against each other? You ever done that to somebody? I mean, like how many wounded people we have in our community that were in those churches, in those environments where it was about being first, about being great, all in the name of Jesus, for your glory, for your kingdom, God. Kind of. We see that here. They get indignant at them. When the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. You know why they were mad? Because they didn't ask Jesus first. <laughs> How dare you go and ask Jesus for that? You ever done that? Like, you're mad at somebody else because they got to the person first. They got to the thing first that you really wanted. How dare you get to the wedding dress before me? How dare, like, I wish I would have thought of that, that business idea. 
that philanthropic social impact idea that you have. You're mad at somebody else because you didn't think of it first. That's exactly what's going on here. But it, it hurts people. When we're not aware of our desires. When we're not aware of our status seeking. How do we know when we're seeking status versus seeking the kingdom? It's tough to discern, right? Because there are legitimate desires here mixed in. There's conflicting desires. I want to make Jesus' name great, but I kind of want to make my name great too. James would go on later to write in chapter 4 of his epistle what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Maybe thinking about this very moment when he's writing this. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your desires are at war? You desire and you don't have, therefore you murder. You covet and you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, he says. How do we know when our desires are off? How do we know when our desires are wrong? Maybe just look around you and begin to ask the question, is the fruit of my desire more shalom or more suffering? Is the fruit of my desire, you know what shalom is, this rich Hebrew word in the Old Testament for peace? But it doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means full flourishing for everyone around me. So if I'm a business owner, how do I know if I'm doing it right? Well, look at the weakest among you. Look at the people lowest on the org chart. Are those people being lifted up or are they being pressed down? That's what Jesus is saying. To be a leader is to go low. It's to look for the invisible, the hidden, the weak, the lonely, and to lift them up. So if we're doing it Jesus' way, we'll see more shalom and less suffering in our leadership. So let's just stop here and pause with Jesus as he teaches James and John and ask ourselves that same question. What do you want? What do you want in your leadership? What do you want? You have not because you ask not. Do you have the courage, Jesus says, to be honest and to name your desires and to bring them to Jesus, even if they're wrong? Do you have the courage? God, I want to be in charge. I think I can do it better. God, I want to start this business, this nonprofit. I want to start this ministry. I have a vision for this group of people that are vulnerable and hurting. You see, the first step of leadership is naming your desires. It's being honest. It's awareness. It's imagination. It's faith. Jesus, I believe that your kingdom is coming, that your will is going to be done. I want to be a part of that. Let me be honest about my desires. I want to participate. See, some of us are afraid to name our desires. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we're passionate about. We're afraid to bring our desires to Jesus because we're afraid we're going to get it wrong. Some of us are so tentative and hesitant. Well, I don't know. I don't know enough theology. I don't know enough doctrine. I don't know enough philosophy. Maybe I don't even read. I don't know anything about the kingdom. I'm going to get, I'm going to get it wrong. Some of us are wounded. And we don't bring our desires to Jesus because we've become cynical. I, I, I did that one time, and look at what happened. Look at the mess in my life because I took a risk. And so we, we move into this space of withdrawal. We don't care about anything. We don't love anything. We won't die for anything. We won't bleed for anything. We won't suffer for anything. We won't declare anything. We won't name anything. And, and, and that's a safe shelter, like think about Jonah kind of sitting outside the city, 
you know, it's easy to be cynical. It's easy to deconstruct. It's easy to be a bohemian. It's easy to do that. It's hard to build. It's hard to hope. It's hard to have an imagination again when you've been hurt. I get that. But Jesus says, what do you want? Tell me. I'll correct you. When you're off, I'll instruct you. I'll be kind to you. I'll be merciful. I'll be patient with you. But declare it. Bring it to me. Let me redeem it. So Jesus says, don't be afraid to bring your desires to me. I will redeem it. Psalm 37, 4, my favorite verses in the Bible from the time I was a teenager became a Christian. Jesus, uh, God says in the Old Testament there, um, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Now, what some of us do is we take that and we turn God into a genie. God, here's my desires. I want you to do what I say. We turn God into an executive assistant. God, here's my plan. If you could just execute on this, that'd be great. That's not what the Psalms is actually saying. He's saying, as you delight yourself in the Lord, God will give you the right desires. He will take your wrong desires, your misfiring, misguided ambition, and he will redeem it and restore it and redefine it for you. He'll give you the right one. But name them. Name your desires. And then let Jesus reshape your vision for what it means to be a leader. It starts with awareness and then moves to service. Notice what Jesus goes on to say here in Matthew 20, verse 25. But Jesus called them to himself as they're fighting, as they're bickering over who's going to be the greatest. Jesus pulls them close and he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. This is the prevailing view of leadership. They lorded over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. It shall not be so among my leaders. But whoever would be great. Jesus says, nothing wrong with wanting to be great. But make sure you understand what greatness is. Whoever wants to be great must become your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. That's indentured servitude. People who got into debt, selling themselves into slavery to pay off a debt. It's the lowest place you could be in a household. It's the people that wash feet. That's what it means to be a leader. Even as, so now he gives us the pattern. Why am I telling you this? It's not just to make an impact. It's not just to engage in transactional service, right? Quid pro quo. I'll do this for you. I'll be a servant. This is, this is what's ultimately wrong with the servant leadership business model. It's transactional. I'll serve you so that you can serve me. I'll go low as long as you fulfill your end of the bargain. It's contractual. Jesus says the difference with the kind of leadership I'm calling you to is that it involves death. It involves blood. It involves a ransom. Even as the Son of Man, Jesus says, even me, who's worth being served, who has all power and authority of the universe, if anybody's worthy to be worshipped and served, it's Jesus. He says, even me came not, even I, came not to be served, but to serve. And to give my life, to give his life as a ransom for many. Quick side note, Jesus here is not deconstructing the legitimate use of power and authority. He's not saying power and authority are bad in and of themselves. What he's disabusing them of is the seeking of status. 
So Jesus himself, one of the primary ways that we, we know this is true is because throughout the Gospels, he's known by the crowds as one who teaches with He's not afraid of authority. There we go. He's not afraid of authority, um, but he's saying it can be abused. He, he calls Paul to be the apostle and missionary to the Gentiles, a man of great privilege, a man of great education, a, a man of great scholarship, who was in the elite the, the, of, of kind of the Jewish world. He establishes churches. And he builds them in Matthew 16, 18. He says on leadership. He gives leadership authority and structures. So he's not deconstructing the legitimate use of power and authority. He's reshaping and redeeming our vision for what it actually means in the first place. See, Jesus says pagan leadership, the way of the Gentiles, that's just to say that kind of the way of the world is this need. So this is like leadership one-on-one for the world. Every business, like even Christian ones oftentimes, the need to be served that demands the life of others. That's the heart of leadership, Jesus says, in the world. I need to be served, and I'm going to demand your life to do it. Even as a business owner, I will serve you as long as it's in my best interest. As long as the stocks are going up and the dividends are increasing, the profit's going up, as long as my status is being increased. It's this need to be served that demands the life of others. The mantra of the way of the world is your life for mine. This gets expressed all kinds of ways, you know, this desire to see things go bigger, better, faster, stronger. This is like fast company. You know, this is like this is that kind of leadership model. Anything that's not going bigger, harder, stronger must be something wrong with it. We, we have this definition of leadership that says leadership is influence. And I wonder if we might not be able to substitute influence for control. Is that what Jesus is saying? Leadership is influencing other people? What, what happens when we're trying to influence? There's a violence to that. There's a coercion to that. There's a force that we're trying to bring to play in people's lives. Influence means I want to control you. I want you to think like me, talk like me, do what I'm about, embrace my agenda, my ambitions. You see how we just easily we buy into these definitions of leadership? Jesus says that's the way that the world does it. They lord it over each other. They use their power to push people down, to rob people and strip people of their dignity and their value and their self-worth. They reduce them to commodities to be exchanged on a market. Now, we can do this in religion. Let's be honest. Like how many of us engage in religious service or moral service to get something from other people? Many of us are wired that way. So David said that I think the majority of us are probably not wired as servants, but some of us are caretakers and helpers by nature. We love to care for people. Maybe you're in like the service industry because you just love to care for people. You love to love people. You're just a bleeding heart. And how many of us can transfer into the church and begin to serve other people, not because we actually love them, but because we like the way it makes us feel? We like to feel needed. So what happens when that love doesn't get reciprocated? What happens when you get snubbed? What happens when you don't get acknowledged? What do you do? If you're a servant, 
One author said, hell hath no fury like a servant scorned. You rage. You seethe. You never say anything out loud. It's like, these people don't appreciate me. They don't value what I bring to the table. Like, that's the heart of a person who's living in this paradigm of the way of the world. You're doing it not to love other people. You're doing it to be loved, to be known, to be seen, to gratify your desires. Because there's a hole in your soul that you're trying to fill with service. Jesus says, it's not to be so among us. I have a different vision for my people. Jesus' vision is a vision for kingdom leadership. The way of Jesus is very simply, you want a definition for Jesus on leadership. And notice, you'll never see the word leadership on the lips of Jesus. What's the word that he uses? Serve. Leadership is sacrificial service. It's not the need to be needed, but rather, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. It's sacrificial service that brings life for others. The way of the world is the need to be served that demands the life of others. The way of Jesus is sacrificial service that brings life for others. It's the kind of service that brings healing. It's the kind of service that through love restores those things that are broken, pushes back on dark places, serves the least, looks for the hidden. It says, not bigger, better, faster, stronger, but slower, hidden, ordinary, over a lifetime. I mean, is there anything fast about the ministry of Jesus? He takes 30 years to go public. He dies on a cross. I'd say big failure if you're an angel investor in the ministry of Jesus, your leader dies. Jesus says kingdom leadership is not your life for mine. It's my life for yours. This idea of a ransom is to purchase something back. This is a rich word of the New Testament. It's this idea of purchasing someone out of freedom. It's someone who sold themselves into slavery and somebody with big pockets shows up and makes a sacrificial gift to purchase that person out of slavery and to free them. Don't think chattel slavery. This is not what's happening in the New Testament. This is indentured servitude. This is the heart of ransom. And Jesus says, I've come to ransom. Like, my whole purpose in life is to come to serve, to love you into the vision that I have for your flourishing. And I'm going to do it not just by dropping cash on the table. First Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19 says, He ransoms us with His precious blood. The blood of Jesus takes away our sin. The, the sacrificial love of Jesus is what makes us right. It's what frees us from slavery. And we don't like to think of ourselves as slavery, but that's the message of the New Testament is we are in bondage. We are in bondage to our own desires, and we don't even see it. I was watching the movie uh, Sixth Sense again last week. I was on TV. And a great turn at the end, plot twist, when the, the psychologist realizes he's dead, and he doesn't even know it. And the, the theme throughout the movie is, I see dead people. I see dead people. He's talking to the psychologist. That's what it's like to be dead. It's to be alive and yet not really alive. And Jesus came to ransom that from us. He, he gives his life to secure it for us. He lives the life that we couldn't live. He dies the death that we should have died. And he rises again to offer us 
freedom and wholeness and healing. He drinks the cup of God's wrath. That word cup there is the word used throughout the Bible. Ezekiel, Jeremiah 25. It's the cup of judgment. It's the cup that we deserve. He drinks it to the dregs. My life for yours. And Jesus is doing something here that's absolutely unique and unrepeatable. So don't, Jesus isn't calling, we're not dying for anybody's sin. So like servant leadership is not like you're going to go substitute yourself in somebody's place for their sins. You're not going to drink the big cup. But he says to James and John, you will drink the cup. And they actually do. You know that James dies a martyr's death. John, history tells us, who would go on to write Revelation, uh, was exiled to the island of Patmos because after they tried to boil him alive, they couldn't kill him. So they exiled him. Jesus said, you want to be a leader? You're going to suffer. Paul says to be a leader is to carry around anxiety for the churches. This is the heart of servant leadership. Matter of fact, I would say this. You're not ready to lead until you're ready to suffer. Any parents in the room? You're not ready to lead. Like, if Jesus gave you the power that he promised them in Matthew 19, it would destroy you. Just like you're not ready to parent a teenager. They start as babies. Terrorists. Then they teach you what it's like to be a parent. That, like, parenting is a great analogy for, for what it means to lead. It's sacrificial service. Basically, when you become a parent, you, you kind of drop kick your life for like 20 years. That's why some of us don't want to do it. We know. But like when that baby's up crying, demanding your life, it's their life or yours. The decision of a parent is my life or yours. I'm going to feed you even though I'm dog tired right now. I'm going to remind you for the 50th time to clean your room. Because I have a vision for your flourishing. You see, that's all that's happening. It's a vision for flourishing that requires sacrificial love. That's the only way things mature. That's the only way that things become whole and get healed is if somebody takes the hit. Let me put it in terminology some of us will understand. Just think of Harry Potter. Harry Potter. Like, I don't know if J.K. Rowling's a Christian or not, but she, she writes about these great themes of redemption, and she's essentially saying that uh, the only thing that heals people is sacrificial love. Somebody standing in and taking the hit for somebody else. Harry's mom in book one, reading this to my sons. I wasn't allowed to read growing up. Now I'm reading this as an adult with my sons watching the movies. She takes the curse. She dies. And then at the end of the first book, there's this beautiful line in this exchange when Voldemort tries to kill Harry, and he's not able to. He tries to touch him, and he burns. And Harry goes to Dumbledore in this scene at the end of the book, and he says, why couldn't he touch me? Dumbledore says, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's for you leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign." But to have been loved so deeply will give us protection forever. Let's just close here with a couple of questions. How would your leadership change if you just substituted a word? So we love talking about leadership, which means we like to be in charge, we like status, we like power. 
We're trying to change the world. We have our quests and our projects for the holy grails of leadership. But how would your life change, maybe, if you begin to, like Jesus, say, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. Instead of talking so much about leadership, what if we just talked about service? How much would your life change if you said, instead of I'm the leader of this, I'm the servant of this? I'm the servant of this business. I'm the lead servant in this company. I'm the lead servant on my floor processing food stamp applications and requests for people in our community. I am here to serve them. I'm here to serve kids at Arsenal Tech High School with the message and the mercy of Jesus. That's my job description. That's my measure of success. I'm the leader. We like to fight over this in family. Who's the boss? You know, is it complementarianism, egalitarianism, patriarchalism, you know, women in power? If I come into my marriage and I'm concerned about leadership, then what I'm trying to do ultimately is control my wife. But if I come into marriage and I'm concerned and obsessed with service, and my wife is concerned and obsessed with service, like, how much does that change? The orientation, the ethos of your home. I'm here in my neighborhood to serve. I'm on my campus to serve. I'm in my department to serve. What would it look like for us to be in that kind of community? It's really hard. It's really hard. We, we're so blind to the many ways we don't like to serve. David said that so well earlier. Let me just ask this question as we go to communion. How are you coming? How are you coming? How do you come to community? How are you coming to this community? Are you coming to be served? To have your needs met? To pronounce judgment on how hot the coffee is? How tasty it is? Whether it's local or Starbucks? I mean, is that, are you coming? Are you coming to judge the quality of the music? Ah, you know, Trader's Point does it better. I really like College Park. Their preaching's good. Brandon's not as good as Mark. Okay, I'll give you that. Like, you know, music over here is good. I kind of like the worship over here. I kind of like the Bible study over here. Like, is that how we come? We do it. I do it. I'm not happy with myself most weeks, right? Like, we come to be served. Am I preaching to serve you and love you? Is David leading liturgy to serve you and love you? Is Annalie leading music to serve you and love you? Or to be served? It's hard to tell sometimes. You'll never become a servant if you come needing. You'll never become a servant if you come needing something from other people because your soul is a black hole of needing affirmation. It'll never be enough. They'll never love you enough. They'll never give you enough. They will never die for your sins. Only one has done that. And he's the one that sees you. He's the one that knows you. And to be known by him is to be known by the God of the universe. To be beautiful in his eyes. To be complete and whole in his eyes. Frees you to come, not needing to be served, but to be a servant. So how can I show up to community with the mindset that as I've been served with Jesus, I will serve others? Is that how you come to discipleship? Is that how you come to worship each week with a sense of anticipation? I'm here to serve. Who can I serve? Got to open up my eyes. Do you know how many lonely people there are in our community that I talk to every single week that are just like, I wish somebody would notice me. 
I'm sitting here in this room as a woman. I'm sitting in this room as a minority. I'm sitting in this room as a wounded person. I just want somebody to notice me. Like the act of service is just the act of receiving one another, noticing each other, making invisible people feel visible. That's what it means to serve. It's, it's It's a kind of leadership that's concerned more with glass floors than glass ceilings. Because leadership isn't about who's in charge at the top of the pyramid. Leadership's about who's at the bottom pushing up and loving and serving the other people. So dream big. Jesus says, what do you want? I pray that we would have big ambitions for our community. I pray that we would truly want to serve and love our community. But Jesus says, be careful you don't get co-opted in the process. Dream big. Start small. Start with the hidden people. Start with the weak. Start with the overlooked. Start with the ones for whom you're going to get no recognition. But understand that Jesus sees you. So what do you want? Bring your desires to him. Where are you serving? Who are you serving? Not like in your mind the people you imagined that you'd like to serve. But the actual people like, where are you serving? Where are you serving in this body? Week in and week out. Where are you serving in your community? Week in and week out. Who are the real people that God has placed around you? Not the people you wish were there, but the people that are actually there that God's called you to serve right now. Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. To give my life as a ransom for many. That's what it looks like to be a servant. Let's just take a moment to pray. As we come to communion, we close. Let's just ask that question together. What would it look like for us to be a community of servants, transformed by a God who served us, who gave up his life, who shed his blood, who suffered in our place for our sins, to make us a community of servants? Wouldn't that be great if Indianapolis just knew the church as a group of servants? Not people who come with their own ambitions, their own agenda, but a group of people who come to serve and to love people into the life that God's called them to live. Let's confess our sins as we come to communion. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we invite you to stay at your seat. This is a family meal to be shared by those who've been served by Jesus, who know Jesus as their Savior, as their servant, as their King. If you are a Christian, we invite you to take a moment, confess your sins. Acknowledge all the ways which all of us mess this up all the time. And let's ask for more grace. God, make us servants. God, open up our eyes to the many ways that we've come needing to be served rather than coming to serve. And then let's, let's ask, God, what practical next steps do you have for me to, to step into service? Maybe it's just signing up to serve in the nursery. Maybe it's coming alongside a foster care parent who's struggling to meet the needs and just to come and to love them. To step out into my community and to rake leaves for my elder. I don't know what the call is for you, but ask God that question and let's, let's pray that he makes us this community of people. Father, thank you for your goodness. You don't leave us where you found us. God, you have a vision for our flourishing. And that vision is for us to lead by becoming servants. Pursuing greatness by going low. Looking for the weak, the vulnerable around us and receiving them and loving them in the name of Jesus. God, help make us that kind of people. Disabuse us of notions of, and delusions of grandeur and status and privilege and power and success. God, teach us true greatness 
which is to be seen by you, to be served by you, and then to see and to serve others. Sacrificial service to give life to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.